right at the cusp of something huge. We are at a crossroads and the future is completely within our control. We're living through the single biggest culture shift of our time. This is the time for us to just really take charge. That's what revolutions do. They enable the impossible. You're listening to The Growth Show with Mike Volpe. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Growth Show with Mike Volpe. Uh, I'm here this week with David Scott, our guest, who is a five-time entrepreneur, as well as now a uh, partner at Matrix Partners, where he invests in a variety of different companies. And he's also the author of a blog called Four Entrepreneurs, which is number two on the Forbes list of the best 100 best websites for entrepreneurs. Uh, so it's an absolutely blog. Welcome, David. Hi, Mike. How are you? Uh, doing great. I'm really, really excited to have you here. Uh, for people who read your blog and know you through that, uh, they know you as someone who thinks a lot about how to grow companies, what are the things that are important from a sales and marketing perspective. I think you're sort of a, a hobbyist on uh, you know, the acquisition side of a company, yeah, uh, something you're very, very passionate about. So I'm really, really excited to have you here. I think we wanted to talk a lot about sort of the uh, the CMO role. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's interesting not only for CMOs, but also for CEOs and how they think about it, also heads of sales and how they think about sort of their counterpart. But tell us a little bit more. You've invested in a lot of companies, you've been on a lot of boards, you've run companies. What does the board look for in a CMO? That's a great question because it's changed so much. I think the, you know, the old CMO, the top thing you were looking for was creativity and the ability to come up with just phenomenal creative stuff. Um, and what's altered in the last 10 years is the role of technology and data in that job, plus a few other things, but let's just talk about those two specifically. And so to me, I always think that the primary role of the CMO is to be responsible for their piece of the funnel, uh, and the funnel we can think of as three pieces here. I would think of the top of the funnel, which is how do you find and attract the right kinds of people to come and uh, engage with your business. The middle of the funnel, which is still the marketing role, which is how do you convert those people that, that have come and found you into to really ready-to-buy uh, prospects. And then the bottom of the funnel, which is the sales part, so uh, marketing hands over after it's done the top two roles to the bottom part. Um, and I think the most important thing that I'm looking for when I walk into a board meeting is that the CMO is completely focused around how they're going to deliver the numbers in their, part, their top two parts of the funnel. And so um, it's very, very data-driven and numerically oriented if, if it's done the way I like to see it. And that, I think, is, is very much also the way other VCs and CEOs are looking, looking for things to be as well. So the perfect chart that really tells me that the CMO is on top of their game is a chart that uh, is a diagram of the funnel that breaks it down into a few major stages. It doesn't have to have every single stage in there, but you could break it into even just top of the funnel, middle of the funnel, and, and the bottom of the funnel, sometimes a few more stages than that if you're doing things like a free trial. And it tells me uh, that they're tracking with a timeline graph how things are changing with the new number of visitors that have been coming and finding this company. And then what's happening with those visitors, how many of them are actually converting into an, a lead, and a raw lead, as I would think of it, is at that first stage where you're at the top of the funnel stage. And then in the middle of the funnel, um, how many people have actually turned into a qualified lead? And what is the conversion rate between the raw lead and the uh, qualified lead? So I'm, we're basically tracking two metrics here that are super important. And it's, it's beautiful. It's, that's this simple. It's only two metrics. One of them is the quantity of people, the number of leads at each stage. And the second one is the conversion rate that exists between stages. 
And if I see a CMO that really understands those and is presenting these timeline graphs of these, of these conversion rates and numbers, I am actually immediately relaxed in the board meeting and aware that we're dealing with a pro who understands that this is, this is all about revenue. This is all about how can they contribute to revenue. Well, that's actually a really good thing to know because I think most of us CMOs who have been in board meetings, um, the thing that we want to do is put the board members at ease <laughs> and sort of make sure that they're comfortable with what we're doing. And you know everything's not going to go right 100% of the time. But I think really what you're looking for is how do you instill that confidence in the board that they feel like you know what you're doing, uh, even if every single little thing you do isn't working, right? They yes. feel like you you know how to run the system, you know how to run the team, you know how to build out that function, yeah. such that they have that confidence in you that gets you the ability when there's a few bumps in the road that they still believe in you, that you the person that can take them through that as opposed to having that feeling where they don't have the confidence in you and then the first bump that comes along they say well the person must be the problem as opposed yeah. to just running into some issues yes uh, that's really good to know and so I think that one of the things we had talked about in the studio beforehand was providing folks with maybe an example or a, or a template for um, that that uh, that chart that you were talking about that shows the funnel and the growth stages and different things. And we actually have a, a blog article that, that talks about that and has an example of that that people can download. And we're gonna have a short link for that right now that people can go to, which is which is uh, bitly.com slash skok funnel, S-K-O-K funnel, yep. all lowercase, all one word. Uh, and that's if people wanna check that out and get a visual for it, because we know on the podcast, it's hard to show people the visuals. Uh, so that's something that's good and interesting. Now, so David, from a lot of the things you talked about, it, it really feels like, again, we've gone from the, the CMO being a former uh, you know, VP at a creative agency to being someone that's much more metrics driven, much more analytical, and much has a much better understanding of technology, I think. You haven't talked about the technology side of things. Yeah. How, how, like, how technical does a CMO need to be? Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I think in today's world, um, the, the best CMOs are going to be people who understand technology and how it can be used because it's become vital to the new marketing uh, role that we have. I don't think they need to be programmers or actually necessarily able to operate the software and know exactly how to operate, but I think it's really important that they understand exactly what all of today's marketing tools can do. And so one of the starting points for that is, again, let's, let's use that funnel breakdown the way I, I split it. Top of the funnel to me is a great uh, split from middle of the funnel because the technologies are different there. Um, if it's top of the funnel, uh, I think it's crucial that they understand what's taking place right now with all of the different social media that are out there, um, with inbound marketing as an overall concept and how crucial that is in terms of um, uh, how it's transforming. So I, I, I actually maybe have another um, way of thinking about this, which we can come back to, which would be interesting to, to discuss. But I, I always like to to do uh, a job of putting myself in the customer's mind and understanding how the customer feels when they're interacting with a company. I think of the, it's commonly known as the buyer's journey and, and how they go through. So the, the top of the funnel, being able to understand how the buyer is going through their buying process and which technologies they're interacting with and what technologies you need to support you for that engagement. That's, that's the first step. And then once you've got a raw lead, the important thing in this buyer's journey that I think most people don't get right is mo most marketers assume that the customer's ready to buy the moment they come into contact with them and they make the, the terrible mistake of trying to sell too early. So I have a little story that I tell that I think is, is a way of illustrating this point to people, which is imagine you're sitting 
um, at a train station, you're, you're, you're waiting for a train, you have a bit of time on your hands, you happen to walk into a store because you've got that time, you certainly don't really clearly know that there's anything in there that you want to buy. And within a few minutes of walking into the store, you get uh, accosted by a salesperson who's very keen on selling you something and who's rushing you to, to show you, you know, here are the new things that have come in. This looks like it's going to be really great on you. Wouldn't you like to try this on? And I asked the audience, you know, how do they feel about that? And everybody raises their hands and said, well, we don't like it. We feel annoyed by that. Um, so it's clear that, you know, selling is, is something that can be pretty offensive if it's at the, done at the wrong stage then. But I then asked them, well, you know, what happens if you're off to a wedding and it's a black tie dinner and you don't have a black tie and you go into Nordstrom's and you can't find the black ties anywhere and you're looking for a salesperson desperately and you can't find one. How do you feel about that? And they suddenly realize, oh, my God, we're annoyed because now we can't get a salesperson. So what's the difference between those two? And to me, the difference is that in the one case, the person's not ready to buy and is early in the buying cycle. And they're just at the awareness stage of figuring out if there's something that's interesting to them. And in the, la the second stage, they're really clear that they're right at the end of the buying cycle and they, they want to actually purchase something. So I think what, what uh, the middle of the funnel is about is being able to figure out which people are where in that buying cycle and being able to treat them differently. So you're qualifying people to find out where they are. Are these really ready to buy? And if they are, then you move them through to sales. And if they're not ready to buy, then you're trying to figure out what are their interests so I can segment them. So if I'm talking to photographers, I message them differently. If I'm talking to people in a, um, an agency, I talk to them differently because they have different interests. So to me, the technology for the middle of the funnel is all about um, being able to do marketing automation is the, the, the big word for it. But it's being able to segment customers to create customized messages for them to understand where they are in the buying cycle and to qualify them and to move them through. So I think CMOs really need to have a very good understanding of what the best state of the art thinking is there and the technology that will enable them to do the segmentation and to understand if somebody's early in the buying cycle or not in the buying cycle just from the actions that they're taking on your website. Yeah, I think it's funny because I think by default, the sales reps would want to talk to everyone for five minutes, right? And you're right that that can create a really negative experience. It, it's funny. So I have a, a very old car. My car is 15 years old. And so I'm in the market for a new car now. And I've had a very similar experience of both sides of that. So I had started my process a few weeks ago, exploring a few things. And there were a couple brands where their sales reps were all over me very quickly. And it was just sort of very, very off-putting because I, I wasn't even sure what kind, you know, whether I want an SUV or sedan. I mean, I haven't bought a car in 15 years. I don't really know what I want. Yeah. Uh, and then there's another, you know, a little later, a couple weeks, uh, very recently, past few days uh, I actually got to the point where I was like I think this is one of the top two cars that I'm interested in I filled out a form on their website saying I would like to schedule a test drive yeah like there is not a better buying intent than that no, right that's they didn't get back signal. to me for more than two days Wow. Uh, I had to actually go there in person, and it's hilarious because when I was there in person talking to someone trying to schedule a test drive, um, I then got a call from the company saying, oh, this is so-and-so following up. And I said, following up? Like, oh, I yeah, got yeah, so yeah. frustrated, I had to go to the, go to the, the place in person to do it. So yeah. it's it's very, it's sort of off-putting from the buyer's perspective. So I think you're right. Using, and, and again, in the old world of sort of heavy enterprise sales, like heavy human involvement, the humans would figure all that out. But I think right. what you need to do now is use technology to figure it out because so many businesses have lower price points, more efficient models where you need to use technology to get that leverage. Yeah, and, and the customer prefers self-service. You know, they prefer to do their research themselves without yes. a human being engaged in that because it's so much easier to do it at their pace, at their time of day, and 
uh, in the way they want to. And, right. People love to just be in control. I mean, that's, you know, that's yeah. sort of about everything. There's so much tech, so many technologies yeah. available that make that possible. And another thing that, so sort of jumping back to that CMO role, you know, we're now, uh, you know, we're recording this now sort of toward the end of the year, which is when we're getting into the budget cycles. Yes. People always want to know, you know, how do I go to my CFO and ask for more money? Right. Right. How right. do I justify, you know, not just for their vanity, but they think they have an ability to help the company grow. How, how do you have that conversation with the CEO, the CFO? How do you justify that budget growth? Well, it's a really good question because uh, it's one where I see a lot of CMOs struggling. And I think there's a very, very simple answer here. And it goes back to the knowledge of the funnel that I talked about in the first part of this conversation. So let's start with the idea that the CEO typically kicks off, which is, they start the budget process by saying, it'd be great if we could grow 50% next year. So let's say the revenue was 10 million. That means that you need to do 15 million in revenue. And I'm going to make things really easy and say that this company sells a product for $100,000 average. So if you need to do 15 million next year, and it costs an average of $100,000 every time you sign up a new customer, you divide the 15 million by the 100,000, and that tells you how many customers they need to sign. My math isn't flying quickly enough to, to come up with a number, but let's say it's, you know, it's, it's 1,500 customers. Uh, I think that might be I think right. It might be 150, but yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, 10, 15, yeah. But, Sorry, and it, 1500, so you, yeah. but you get the number of customers that are required. And now you need the conversion rates to be able to figure out what has to be delivered to sales in the way of raw opportunities. Because sales will tell you that, hey, if we get four opportunities in here, our conversion rate is 25%, so we can close one of those. So let's just, again, simplify things. And let's say we need 100 deals to close. So therefore, we need 400 raw opportunities to be delivered to them. And typically in most companies, they should have a split that defines sales is going to come up with, let's say, 30% of the leads themselves, and marketing should be contributing 70% of them. And um, the moment you know that, then you know that sales has to come up with 30 leads and, and marketing has to come up with 70 leads. And our conversion funnel will tell us, okay, wow, you know, if we, if we know that our raw lead to uh, qualified lead is, again, a say, a 10% conversion rate, our 70 leads means we have to have 700 you know, uh, qualified leads that can turn into opportunities. And then if, I, if we look at our raw lead to, to qualified lead, we'll have another conversion rate, which will again tell us how many visitors we have to be able to drive to the site. And we will know from various other things, like if we're using search engine marketing, uh, paid search, that is, we, we've got X uh, ability to drive leads there and it costs this much money. If we're doing inbound marketing and we have some kind of a track record behind it, we will know that in order to create that number of people, we have to have this much more content and therefore we may need to, to have more content writers. But essentially, you have the perfect tool to mathematically define what it is that the marketing group has to do uh, at each quarter for the next, numbers, uh, next year's numbers to be produced and also for the CMO to be able to then accurately define what budget they need to be able to produce those results. And I think if you do that as a CMO, you're not going to have any arguments from the CFO or from the CEO because they're clear about the, the fact they want this revenue target. And I think where CMOs get into trouble is when they have these very vague things saying, well, I've got this budget because I know we need to go to this trade show and I got this PR budget over here and boy, I know I need to do some inbound marketing so I want to hire a content writer over there but they haven't tied those together into the funnel. And that's, again, why, to me, the funnel is the single most powerful thing for a CMO. 
and understanding the two metrics associated with that funnel, the, the flow rates and the conversion rates. If you have that as a CMO, you are in charge of your job and you are perfectly placed with the board, the CEO and the, and the CFO to control your destiny. And I think, so there's one thing I want to add to that and then there's a, a deeper question I want to ask about it. I, I think that what I would add to that is there are certainly, I think, some things within marketing that are much more difficult to mention. I mean, you, you talked about PR, yeah. but I think that as a marketer, as a CMO, what you need to do is build the model the way that you talked about, justify to the company and the board and everyone else that like, hey, if we want to grow this amount of sales, you you know, you know worked with the head of sales, you hired this many more sales reps because sales reps aren't going to magically sell more the next year, right? right you right. need more sales capacity. You also need more marketing capacity. Here's how the math that drives all those things. And if you're doing a good job of that quarter in and quarter out of showing up at the board meetings with the charts and graphs that you talked about, justifying your budget in that way, then people tend to get out of your way a little bit more. And I've been able to invest in things like PR and funny videos and things like that that are hard to really measure the exact impact that they make, but you feel like in aggregate it does have an impact as long as you're doing that core part of your job right. I think a lot of the mistakes that some CMOs make is they focus on those other sort of more brand tangential things without having mastered the funnel side of what they do. And if you master the funnel side, you have a lot of confidence from folks and they're willing to let you experiment more. That's exactly and if you don't right. have that and you're doing just the funny videos and trying to do these viral things and, and trying to do a lot of PR without having the funnel mastered, you're sort of, you're doing things out of order and you're just not, you're needing to gain that trust first. Yeah. So you're, you're, exactly. you're nodding your agreement, yeah. which is you're good right. to yeah. hear. So yeah, it's like, hopefully I've done yeah. that right over the years. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly but, let's, right. but let's dive into that a little bit more. Cause the other question I get on this budget topic is, okay, you talked about having a history where you've been doing some, some pay-per-click ads, you've been doing other types of advertising, or, or even if you have a track record of inbound, you can then take those metrics and sort of drag them out in the Excel sheet and have a sense of what next year is going to look like, how much more investment it's going to take to get that additional lead generation. Right. Yeah. But what if you're talking about trying something new? What about a company that isn't doing any inbound, for instance, right? Maybe they're doing a lot of paid. They haven't started blogging or figuring out how to use social to do lead gen. And the CMO is talking to the CFO and saying, hey, I want to start this new thing. And the CFO says, great, show me the model and show me why it's better than the paid side. And we can easily devote some more money to that. Yeah. What's the end? How do you talk to the CMO about that? that? That's a great question. And, you know, I wish I had a perfect answer for you here. But the the simple nature of it is I, I do get asked a lot on my blog, can you provide me with, you know, typical conversion rates and typical results from a blog post or a, this uh, thing? And the truth is that these things all change based on what the business is and how good their product market fit is, for example, and how uh, good the quality of the articles is, things like that. So there are a lot of variables in that. And I do think that the best thing you can do in the early days is to say, look, this is a, um, a clearly proven technology. We can point to many, many other companies that have made this work here, and everybody is describing that this is the, the, you know, the key way to reach buyers these days. Um, we can take some guesses at what we think the results are going to be, and what we will do is adjust those guesses really quickly as soon as we start getting real data in here based on what we're actually seeing for our particular marketplace, our set of customers, and what we're doing. Uh, but there is no you know, better way, I've, you know, there's no benchmarking study that I can point you at which will give you the, you know, this is the metric that you'll get because it's all over the show. It's yeah, there's no, there's no universal constant, yes. right? This isn't, a, this isn't a scientific principle where there's a universal constant that this constant, you know, the speed of light or whatever, that it, it is the same everywhere in the universe, right? right. It's different right. for different companies. 
overall, it is, we, we believe most companies find it to be more effective. And I think that there's a lot of evidence to that effect. But exactly, well, when you post a blog post, how many leads and how many customers do you get? Yeah. I've seen for people that number being very low. I've seen it being very high for other companies. But it depends on how big the customers are, what industry you're in, where they are in the purchasing cycle, things things like that. So there's a, I think there's you're right. It's almost like you just need to, and this is one of the things that's hard, is you need to sell the CFO and the company and the CEO on, hey, I need 100,000, 10,000, 200,000, some amount of money to try this for six months. Yes. Just to set a benchmark and start set a baseline of what it's going to look like. And then we can start to model and optimize and improve from there. Yep. But the whole, but it's, I think it's, it's that initial thing that I think people have trouble getting over. And, and here's, here's the, my advice would be it's go back to what you said, which is if you show your CEO and your CFO, that all the way you think about marketing is, is about this funnel and about producing leads in this funnel and about trying to come up with the lowest cost of lead and the highest volume of leads, highest best conversion rates, you will get the credibility from them that you are not somebody who's not thinking about how to do cost-effective lead conversion for sales. Right. Uh, in other words, you're somebody who's directly attuned to the fundamental primary goal of the CEO, which is to increase revenue. And you're trying to do it with every tool that's available to you. You're trying the, but you always are going to be measuring your results. And if they think that you care about measuring and being cost effective and see that you're looking at the, the way this is going to contribute towards a sale, that's how to win. What's what the way to not win is to walk in and just generally talk about, well, this seems to be a good technique. You, I think you need to tie it back into that funnel and tie it back in with some guesses even at, at you know, we think this will generate for this investment here, this kind of lead flow and um, over this period of time. Yeah, I think that's a good that's a good point. And and show them these are the charts and graphs we're going to use to measure it. I don't even know what the numbers are going to look like, but this is how we're going to measure it, and how we're going to evaluate yes. the success. And six months from now, we will either have an answer as to you know here here's what it is worth investing in this in order to help us grow versus you know a different level of investment. Yeah, I think I think a lot of it boils down to that. The other thing I would say is that if you've done a good job of building that trust through the right relationship with the CEO and with the board, you will get to the point where. Um, you have a lot more flexibility in your budget without going to them. Like I know, you know, CMOs are sort of smaller and growing companies or where the, the president or the CEO is a little bit more involved, have to maybe justify anything over a certain level of in incremental spend and things yeah. like that. Whereas, um, uh, you know, don't let Brian listen to this, but we're at the point at HubSpot where I can try things without talking get to anyone or getting approval yeah. from anyone because I have enough room in my budget that if I need to spend right. a decent amount of something, a money, I just go and do it, yes. right? And, and I have some flexibility because... I've built that level of trust and things like that over the years that yes. they, that you, they you, believe will make the right decisions, and it's and it's and I have enough flexibility in my budget where I actually don't even need to go to ask for more money, right? Yes. It's like there's a little bit in there where there's there's kind of a level of there's some experimentation budget in there, and they and they trust that we'll do the right things with it. And you've hit your numbers on your leads, and you know which yeah, is very no, good, I mean, good, not good. every single month for seven years, no, but, but, but but the overall batting average is high. Is high. I would say yeah. so. Yeah, exactly, exactly right, exactly right. So just as a warning, you're never going to hit your numbers every single month, right? right. To everyone, right? right? It's like you know, no one bats a thousand, yeah. uh, but if you do it most of the time you'll gain a lot of trust okay one other topic i wanted to make sure we covered was uh compensation yes so um uh, we, you know we cmos uh always feel like we provide a ton of value to the company we should be extremely highly compensated but what what does that mean give us a sense of sort of compensation for the companies that you're most familiar with which are venture-backed growth companies yep. and then any comments you have about companies outside of that data set as well of like how should a cmo think about their compensation should it be related to the size of the company should it be related to how important marketing is to that company what how should they think about that 
Yeah, so I, I think again, I, I will um, just mention here that this, my perspective is very much venture-backed companies, um, and we typically are involved with them from the super early days, maybe even when the seed round goes in, to the point where they go public. And so one part of this is, in our world, we typically are looking to really help optimize compensation using equity, because we think that that's the place where uh, people come to join a startup because they believe something big is going to happen, and we can really put a fantastic win in their hands by doing that. So we're never spending a lot of time trying to optimize cash. Uh, and many times the question I'll ask of a candidate is, you know, what's more important to you, cash versus equity? Because in my view, I can, you know, long-term view, make you the greatest win here in equity. But if you want a lot of cash, then I, can, I have to trade that off against some equity. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about the equity piece for a second. So this is pretty stage dependent. If you're looking at a seed company that is maybe hasn't even raised its first round of seed and you become the business partner who's really the second business focused person in a company, you could actually expect a pretty significant chunk of equity that might even go up into the you know 10% range. But that's more co-founder status really rather than just plain CMO. Um, so let's say that the company has raised seed funding and now you're joining post the money coming in. A lot of the risk has been removed. The valuation has been somewhat set there. Um, I think that that phase is a little bit you know, less uh, cast in stone because what happens afterwards, the, the Series A dilution is quite important. So oftentimes I might, I might think about what's, what's the post-Series A ownership going to be for somebody. And for me, a CMO in that kind of range, that I'd be looking to see them somewhere at about the 1.5% range. And for the really great person who brings a ton of experience, uh, could be as high as 2% in, in that type of a situation. And then as the company grows and raises money at much higher prices, a lot of the risk has been removed from the company and the company's being valued at a higher level. So you're being given stock that's worth much more money than uh, it was at that early stage where there was lots of risk. So the amount will start to drop down. And maybe at the point where the company's going public, it could be down in the you know, 0.5, 0. 0.75% range by that stage because there's just an overall uh, change in the, in the value if you, if you were being hired from scratch. So those might give you some ideas of the ranges. Um, any, are, any comments on, uh, uh, I think public companies, people have a sense too, because there's a lot more publicly available data on that, but private non-venture-backed companies, yes. do you feel like that's just all over the map or any, any sense of that? I actually don't know if you, if you have any I, knowledge of that. I unfortunately don't, yeah. but I think when we, when we get involved with companies that have, um, typically, if they haven't had venture capital in there, they've mm-hmm. underpaid the CMO. Yes. And one of the first things we need to do with them is get them to realize, hey, you're not going to get there without your team being great. And we are so super focused on hiring A players into all of the team slots because we know that that's the single biggest way to guarantee success of the company. Um, so we like to really see the wealth being spread and, and see the management team sharing in the rewards. Uh, and we think that that for the CEO who might be sitting there saying, hey, I own 100% of this company and I'm about to give a chunk of my business away, that's the wrong way to think about it. The right way to think about it is, hey, I've got... Um, X dollars value here, if I hire this person, even though I'm going to have less shareholding, that person's likely to increase the value of my remaining shareholding by far more than they cost me. And so they should be generous on this point of, of uh, you know, providing equity to the uh, You know, the line I love on that topic is uh, from Mark Cuban, which uh-huh. I've heard. He says, uh, would you rather have 50% of a grape 
or 10% of a watermelon, right? And you're like 10% of a watermelon. You got to you got to think big and think about growth and that's and that's really that perspective Absolutely. that you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. So maybe uh, let's wind this down cuz I think we're sort of coming around our, our sort of common uh, uh, time uh, uh, not constraints but sort of what we're looking to do the show in. So tell me about um, a little piece piece of advice to maybe leave people with and one of the things we were talking about was maybe a common mistake people make when they set up marketing. That's yeah, that's kind of a good parting words of wisdom for folks. Yeah, yeah, great. So, you know, certainly one of the most common things that I will see is there's a, a, a marketing uh, exec that's sitting there for the first time in a company. They walk in and somebody's told them, hey, you should be doing inbound marketing. And somebody's also told them, boy, you need to go to that trade show because that's really important. Somebody's also told them, boy, you should be doing PR because that's a great way to go and get some, some things going there. And so they start doing all of these activities. And what I see that's taking place there is a failure to design marketing. They are doing things because of just uh, some, some thoughts and random ideas that these things are they're going to work. So when I talk about designing marketing, I think it's all about, again, funnel design. So to me, what you're trying to do with a funnel design is figure out that there is two stages to that funnel. How do you get people to the top of the funnel and how do you move them through the bottom of the funnel? And then you want to figure out, okay, put myself in the head of my buyer here. What kind of things does this buyer look for when they're at the top? So what am I, what tools are available to me to use to move the person to the top of the funnel and then through the bottom of the funnel? And let me design actions that are the most cost effective and the least resource intensive here, particularly in startups because you have so few resources, you can only do, afford to do a few things. So you're gonna, you're gonna really basically prioritize what those actions are that you can take that will drive the most level of leads through the funnel for you. And, and if you do that, you'll end up realizing, okay, some of these things, hey, they're nice to do, but they're too expensive and they don't produce enough leads. For example, trade shows frequently turn out to be unbelievably expensive for a tiny number of leads. And even though everybody says, well, we have to be there because the brand presence is so important, actually you don't because fundamentally your business is not gonna survive if you don't create sales. And your number one thing is how do you create sales by bringing lots of leads through there? And go to that trade show when you're about five times bigger than this. Um, because that's not your top priority at this point in time. I, hopefully, we're an example of companies proving that you don't have to be at that trade show. I mean, we've done we've done a couple experiments over the years, but very, very little of that stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, the trade shows, and I think we've built a pretty nice business here. So I think that uh, again, there are there are some examples of people sort of doing that. And I think that the other thing too is that I see all the time people falling into that trap that you're talking about. Sort of the person who was a marketing director then gets put into a senior director VP role to run marketing in a new company and they take that to-do list or that task list approach of like you know because most marketers are frantic and they're overworked and they have so much to do and they're you know get the blog articles out as one of the things in the list and do the trade show and do this and do that and they go into the new role and they go to the CEO and say what are the list of things I have to do right. and the CEO just sort of says I don't know the trade show the PR the this the that the whatever and they come up with their task list and then again they have their task list on their pad and they're doing their tasks and crossing them off and they haven't that taken that step of saying okay well if I'm going to lead marketing at this company I need to take that step back figure out what does that buyer's journey look like set up my funnel and then that is the golden standard by which I test all of my activities and say are they driving that or not and feel free to say no to things I think most marketers don't do enough saying no yes and and, and Mike just you I have one thing that I'd really like to add here and you just kind of triggered it for me the thing that I think has made me successful in all of my companies was one very straightforward skill which was 
I think I was good at understanding how the customer was going to react to everything that our company was doing. Mm -hmm. um, I was able to put myself in their shoes and figure out this, was, this ad might offend them or this ad was really going to work for them because this was actually what they really cared about and was interested in it. And I was very sensitive about never selling too early and leading them through something that was interesting and valuable to them. So I have this, this simple um, way of thinking about it. I think of the customers like a bank account. You can't take money out of that bank account before you've put some money in there. And so I think about what value can I deposit into that bank account early to create an interesting reason for the buyer to want to come and engage with me and then lead them through after I have an engagement with them to getting trust with them. And once I've got trust with them, selling becomes very simple and straightforward. I love uh, it. Sounds awesome. It's all about building value in the customer relationship. Building value in the customer relationship. A lot of people try to um, do it from too much of a sales-centric viewpoint and take the value before they can create it. Yeah. So, um, uh, so uh, thanks again, everyone, for listening. This has been uh, David Scott of Matrix Partners and the blog for entrepreneurs.com. That's F-O-R, entrepreneurs.com. Uh, and this is Mike Volpe with The Grow Show. Thanks for listening.